As human beings, one of the things we crave is community. We need social interaction, and we want to feel like we belong in a group, whether it's family or co-workers or a church or a local club. It seems like we just have a need to be with other people. But for some people, there are times when we like being alone. I ride my bike every morning, and it's something I really look forward to, just being out there for an hour, just me and my own thoughts, and maybe a podcast or two, of course. For some reason, in our modern society, there's sometimes kind of a stigma with doing things by yourself. I know some people who would feel a bit awkward going to see a movie alone. That doesn't bother me at all, though. If there's a movie that comes out that looks really good to me, it might be something that my wife wouldn't want to see, so I don't mind just going to see it by myself. My guest today, Karen, lives in South Africa, and she's the same way. She's always kind of liked being by herself, especially in the outdoors with no other people around. One afternoon, she was out on a solo trail hike, really enjoying the solitude and being surrounded by nature with no one else around. But she wasn't the only one on the trail that day. Real people in unreal situations. There is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. My friend has been shot. I'm in the literally inside the river and I'm inside my car. He had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire. If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm going to kill you. And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're going to be okay. And I jumped on the hood of the car and I held on. And I looked into the garage and he was hanging from the rafters. I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona. Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. One of the aspects of this story is poaching. How common is that in this area, and and what animals are usually being targeted for that? Poaching is is a very big subject. It's it's not... So when you talk about poaching, most people think of elephant and rhino and stuff like that and sort of big game killing endangered species for valuable body parts and there's a lot more to it than that poaching basically just means illegal hunting 
So the kinds of, of poachers that I ran into that day are, they're not looking for big game. They're not hunting for meat and they're not hunting for skins or anything like that. It's, it's actually highly organized illegal gambling networks. They take dogs into nature reserves. And um, I'm not entirely too sure how it works or where the, the money side of it comes in, but it's, it's something to do with betting on the dogs. And they send these dogs to track and kill game in the nature reserves. Where this happened was in the Midland region in KwaZulu-Natal. And where you were hiking was pretty close to where you live, right? Yeah. So I stay in um, KwaZulu-Natal in um, South Africa. So it's the Natal Midlands region. So it's in a mist belt, very mountainous valleys, hills, uh, very green, very lush, very, very beautiful. This particular reserve is, I mean, there are many, many, so many in the area. This particular one is about six minutes drive from my house. And it's huge, too. It, I mean, I, what I read is 900 hectares, which for the Americans listening is about 2,200 acres. So this place is really big. Is it that big? <laughs> I didn't realize it was quite that big, but I'm terrible with units of measurement. We would actually consider it relatively small, to be honest. Um, it's, it's a pretty small one to, to our thinking. So that's interesting. And what kind of wild animals would you expect to see when you're out there? That's actually a very good question for reasons you don't know. <laughs> it's a safe hiking region in that it doesn't have any of the, the big five. It doesn't have any dangerous predators in there. Um, there's rumors that there's leopard in there. There probably are, but they're impossible to see. They're, they're so shy and secretive. And, but basically, there's no major predators in there that would be a threat to anybody's safety. It's not like in the States where you guys go hiking in Alaska and run into bears. You know, we, we don't have that problem there. So it's really pleasant pleasure hiking. Lots of bird life. And I've been going to this particular reserve since I was a child. All through my life, every time I've gone there, it's been wonderful seeing what we call buck, you know, antelope, deer, and, and of all different species, so many different species. It was, it used to be teeming with them. And then the last couple of years, um, I was overseas for a long time. And then every time I'd come back home to South Africa, I'd visit this, this nature reserve. And the last few times that I went there before I moved back properly, there just wasn't any. Just a massive sudden lack of fauna. Still fantastic bird life and still beautiful. And but you know you don't really see buck. There's there's zebra, there's wildebeest, there's there there are buck in there, but you used to be tripping over them. <laughs> and suddenly there were none. There was just this massive drop in the population. Of course now I know why. Now I know it's because of the poaching. But I, I couldn't figure it out at first. Why buck specifically? Why is it why is it like this now? Because I've been going there since I was a kid, it's always had strong sentimental value for me, this specific particular reserve. I've always just loved it. So to me, it's always been a place that's very familiar and very beautiful. And, and whether it's full of wildlife or not is neither here nor there to me in that respect. I mean, it's nice if there's wildlife, of course, but I like to just be there. It's wonderful that you mentioned that you don't have to worry about any predatory animals. Hmm. The humans, that's another story. Yeah. As, we, as we'll find out. Yeah. So on that day when you were there, how far did you plan to go on this hike? It was just a day hike. I wasn't planning on doing anything spectacular. I kind of went there on a whim. 
you know, it was a beautiful day, beautiful, beautiful weather. I woke up early and I thought it'd be really nice to go swim in the river, go for a hike and swim in the river. So it was really just going to be taking it easy. It, it probably helps if I sort of describe what the terrain in there is like. So it's basically a very, very deep valley. So the, the, the nature reserve fences in a massive valley, very, very steep. What you do when you arrive there is you sign in at the reception and then you drive. And then around the rim of this valley, there's a dirt road. And you can park your car at various points on this dirt road. And then wherever you leave your car, you will hike down. And you hike all the way down into the, to the, where it's flat at the bottom where the river is. And, you know, you can do whatever you want down there. But to get in and out requires hiking these very, very, very steep trails through the valley. So as far down as you go, you're kind of thinking in the back of your head, I have to go that steep mountainside to get back up to the dirt road. Exactly, exactly. So it's even a case of it's a hot day, I want to go swim in the river, you swim in the river and you, <laughs> by the time you get to the top again, you're going to be sweaty and hot again, <laughs> because it's, it's such hard work and, and quite strenuous hiking in its own way. So for a hike like this, what were you wearing and what, what did you, what do you carry with you? I was wearing a swimsuit, like bikini thing, underneath, because I knew I would be swimming. Um, and then I was wearing, not jeans, but they, they look like jeans, but they're not as thick a fabric, just sort of stretch pants that have a little bit of weight to them um, because of pushing through undergrowth and stuff and you want to have bare legs. And then just a t-shirt and a cap, super, super simple. And and I had a fantastic pair of, of old school hiking boots, you know, the ones that look a bit like Doc Martens, you know, the really thick soles, <laughs> so old school lace-up hiking boots. And in my pack, really basic medical aid, a few Ziploc bags so I could put my phone and stuff in so it wouldn't get wet. Um, what else? A small towel, uh, something to eat, and, and pepper spray, and pepper spray. So I'd actually, you know, people, people, <laughs> Came, came after me for solo hiking. I have some thoughts on victim blaming. Uh, we can get into that later if you want. I don't know. But I'm not a complete idiot. So I did bring my pepper spray with me and I'd actually made by myself made like a, a kind of a belt holster thing so that it would be around my waist and I would just completely forget about it. So I'd be hiking and I'd forget that it was there, but it was secure on my hip. So I always had that you know, your pepper spray, your mace is only as good as you can reach it. So if it's the bottom of your bag, you may as well not even be carrying it. So I always made sure that mine was easily accessible, that if I needed to, to grab it, it was right there. Obviously, now after this, you're more aware of surroundings and the dangers of being alone and that kind of thing. But how much did you think about that before it happened? I mean, obviously, you had some thought because you were carrying mace. Yeah. But yeah. was it something you were very you were very much aware of? I was aware of it. But, you know, the way I see it, it sounds silly to me now in a way, but I would always think I refuse to live my life in fear. Solo hiking, hiking of any type is, is always going to carry with it a certain degree of danger. And I don't necessarily mean being attacked by people or animals or bitten by a snake or, you know, just spraining your ankle on a hike can create a life or death situation. Um, it can. You know, you know that going in. You should know that going in. The best I could figure is, you know, I've got pepper spray on me. I have had combat training for what it's worth. Turned out to be worth a lot, actually. Um, and I'm as prepared as I can be. 
the odds of it happening to me are still very, very low. But if something does happen, I do have a few things in place to help me. I, I could rant and rave a little bit about this, but do you want to live your life always dicing it on those odds or do you want to just live your life? I mean, it's not like I was walking into a war zone. I was going into a nature reserve. No one had been attacked there before. No one's been attacked there since. What, what can you do? Yeah, it's a calculated risk. Absolutely. And again, you know, it's not like I, I wasn't completely naive. I don't know if that makes it better or worse that I did it anyway, you know, but I, I wasn't naive and I, I was prepared. Should I come across, should the worst happen? I was prepared for that. Um, even as I was thinking, it's okay, it won't happen to me. I did still do my due diligence, you know. Take us from, from when you started hiking to what happened that day. I arrived, I signed in at the reception. Yeah, I got in my car again and I, I drove through the gates and I went around maybe about 10 minutes drive, maybe a bit more. I, I couldn't actually say for sure. Along the dirt road, it's about a third of the way along. So not a massive distance, not the kind of distance you want to walk though. And stopped my car and, and then I hiked down. I knew the spots on the river that I wanted to go to. I had a specific area in mind. And I love this particular hike because you go by these abandoned A-frame sort of camper hut type things that are on stilts. And because it's been disused for so long, it, it looked really creepy. And I liked that. It was like walking into the Blair Witch Project type area. So <laughs> I love that hike. I love visiting that area. And then I love this spot by the river. So that was my plan. So I parked my car and it's it's a really lovely hike. So it's all grassland at the top and then it rapidly starts to descend. And as soon as you get into the sort of shadow fall, it becomes really dense with vegetation and then you're hiking through an indigenous forest. Were you following a trail or is it just hacking your way through this brush? No, this is a set trail. It's a it's a specific it's very narrow and because it's it's so sheer, it kind of zigzags and there are sort of little drop off points where you have to be a bit careful. Again, like I said, with solo hiking, be careful because just falling off of, you know, falling off a drop off, you're going to get quite badly injured. <laughs> so be careful. So it's, it's pretty steep and it's a really refreshing hike and that it, it gets you, gets you nicely exercised. And, um, you have to think a little bit because of how narrow it is. It's usually a bit slippery as well because of the canopy cover, you know, and it's quite moist. So I hiked down there. I messed around at the top a little bit. I zigzagged off of these teeny tiny little side trails and, and was just sort of reacquainting myself with some trails I hadn't been on in a while. Reached my, my Blair Witch House <laughs> area. Um, I hung out there for a little bit. And then I went to the river to go and swim. It was really just taking my time. I was just enjoying the day by myself. I went to the river. I had a really wonderful swim. The water was freezing, which is always fantastic. <laughs> and um, it's a it's a brilliant section. It's the one thing I've never I haven't gone back there, and I I really miss it. Actually, it's, it's such a lovely place to swim. It's got these boulders that you can walk across, and it's quite a nice current in certain sections. Or there's rock pools on the sides that you can just hang out in. It's just it's just blissful. It's lovely. Sat on the rocks for a while. I had my lunch. Uh, really glad I ate. Uh, yeah, so it had been a good couple hours in all between the, the hike down, the messing around, and then the time in the river. I was already there for, for a good few hours. 
And in this first section, you the first part of the hike, you didn't encounter any other people. No, not at that point. Ah, uh, let me think. Let me think. I did. No, sorry. I did actually. I passed two other hikers at the bottom by the river when I. That's right. I remember thinking uh, it's unusual, and and I was kind of bummed that I'd bumped into them. I didn't want to see people. I really liked being on my own. I remember thinking, damn, there's other people nearby. Am I going to have to switch spots? You know, am I going to have to go somewhere else? Or can I stay where I want to be? I didn't want to be around people. So my plan was that I would leave the river. I would hike back to my car. I wanted enough time to drive back towards the front end of the park. And I would visit another little waterfall there that I really like, which is a super easy hike just to finish off on and just go and sit and look at the waterfall for a little bit. And then go home. So I plan to be home by four because it's a because of the shape of the valley and how steep it is. Once the sun starts going down, even if it's still sunny topside, the sunset casts a shadow. So if you're in the valley, it gets dark much faster. So I was watching the sun and I was thinking, and, and you've got to factor in how much time it's going to take you to hike to the top. I hate rush hiking. I like to take my time. I don't like sprinting. You know, so I didn't want to be chased out of there. I wanted to take my time, enjoy the hike. Um, but I was mindful of the fact that, okay, the sun's going to start dropping in about an hour or so. And I need to, I want to be topside by the time that happens. I came out of the, it was, it was right by the river. I was done swimming, put my clothes back on. And then I, I scrambled up the bank again. Now, running alongside the river parallel is the, the flat trail I think I mentioned. Um, it's just a, a trail that runs flat along the bottom, follows the river. So from the river there, you can find different trails up to the top again. I had to walk this trail, so it's walking on flat ground for quite a while to find the trail that takes me back up to my car. And it's not straight. There's a few sort of curves in it, but it's basically flat dirt road. I came up the top of the bank and I looked left and I saw two men and dogs standing there on the road. And I thought, uh oh, because <laughs> I could see, I could see they weren't hikers. They didn't have backpacks and they had dogs. This is a dog free nature reserve. They're not allowed to have dogs in there. So they had dogs off leash in there and they, they were not dressed like hikers. So I knew immediately they were poachers. They weren't badly dressed or anything like that, they were in jeans and t-shirts. But, but this is not this is not a typical scene at all. So yeah, the dogs alone were, were a problem, I knew immediately. So I looked at them. They were they weren't right in front of me, they were quite a few meters back, you know, sort of in the distance. But I saw them, they saw me. The second they saw me, they turned and they ran. They ran away. Because what they do in there is wrong, it's illegal. You know, we all know that. They know that. So, so that was, that was probably the first mistake I made in all of this is they ran and I thought, Oh God, this isn't good. These are bad people. You can be pretty sure. I mean, they're there for nefarious purposes, at least. And they know I've seen them. They don't want to be seen. So they've run away. And I thought, okay, cool. They're not going to engage with me because they don't want to be scene. So I thought, all right, uh, I'm going to stand here. I'm going to wait about 10 minutes and give them lots of time to get far away. 
and then I'm going to go because they ran in the direction I wanted to go to get back onto the trail that would take me to my car. So I obviously didn't want to cross paths with them, but I had to kind of make a decision. The alternative would have been to go in the opposite direction and find a different trail up to the top and then hike along, not hike, that would just be walking (laughs) along the, the dirt road at the top back to my car. But I wasn't too sure how far away that trail was or what it was like or anything like that. So I thought, no, I'd rather just go the way I know than be stuck mucking around at the bottom here for ages and ages. I'm just going to give them a good head start and then I'm going to go. And the second I can, I'm going to move right and go. So that you could say was my first mistake. So I waited a while and then I thought, no, pretty sure they would be gone by now. I started walking back the way I'd come. I rounded the bend and they were standing there. I don't want to say waiting for me, but possibly. And here's the weird thing. They were really friendly. They were really nice. You know, they greeted me. They smiled at me. Young guys, you know, if if I'd seen them on the street, I wouldn't have thought twice. You know, I would have, I would have just thought they were young, cool looking dudes. You know, I, I wouldn't have thought of them as poachers. So they they greeted me, I greeted them. Because conservation is something very near and dear to my heart. I said to them, I hope you guys aren't poaching in here. And he said, no, 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 we're just looking for our dog. We've lost our dog, we're looking for our dog. And I thought, well, (laughs) that's still not okay, but okay, you know. And I, I, I started walking. It didn't seem, I mean, I knew this was bad. And I knew it was probably dangerous but there was nothing yet to tell me that this was really gonna kick off i was thinking holy shit this is terrible these guys are in here they're with their hunting dogs i need to to get onto that trail as quickly as possible get to my car the first thing i'm going to do is go straight to the reception and tell them hey you guys have got a serious problem in here you've got poachers in here on a warm day on a weekend you know, when there are quite a few hikers in that you could imagine in the area, they are brazen enough to be by the river down there on a day like today. You guys need to sort it out. You know, I was, I was thinking, shit, this is, this is bad. But yeah, so that was my plan. I was thinking, okay, just, just hurry up. Just get, get onto the trail and get to the car as quickly as you can. What can I say? When I plan a week of meals, I like to have some variety. And with hundreds of meals to choose from, CookUnity has that part covered. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. Not too long ago, I tried the cauliflower and chickpea coconut curry. I love curry anyway, but even if you're not normally a fan, you should try this one. It's one of the dishes prepared by Chef Michelle Bernstein here in Florida. She has a couple of restaurants here, and she's also a judge on the TV show Chopped, so you may have already seen her. But aside from the taste, it's the convenience. Because let's face it, even if I knew how to cook, I don't have time. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when mealtime rolls around, I pick out what I feel like eating, and within just a few minutes, it's ready. No prep and no cleanup. And when I say variety, I'm talking over 350 different meals from dozens of chefs. You can decide based on a chef you like, or protein content, or just what you prefer. The menus are updated weekly, so there's always something new. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. 
Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. I walked for a little while, actually, and then I heard this panting behind me. And it was one of the hunting dogs and it was on my heels. It didn't, it didn't do anything, but it stayed behind me. It was tracking me. These, these dogs are highly trained. It's, it's very possible that they sent it after me to track me. It's, it's quite possible. I don't know, but it, it is a possibility. So I had this dog and I kept hearing it panting and I knew don't run because <laughs> if I run, that's going to incite the predator instinct, then it will chase me, you know, and, and I don't know, you know, I, there's so many decisions you have to make on what you don't know, you know, in these situations and, and just try to make, make your best educated guess on what to do. So I thought I've got a dog following me. I was hoping that they would call it back. They weren't calling it back. And then I thought if it, I can't risk it chasing me. If this is, if this is what I think it is. And then from behind me, I hear uh, one of the guys call, give us your bag or you die here. And then I thought, oh, shit, I am really in trouble here. I am this, this is very bad. Just did the math quickly. There's two strong young men here. There's two men. There's a bunch of dogs and there's me. Whatever, whatever they want to have happen, I, I don't know how much of a say I'm going to have in it. I don't know what I will be able to do to control the situation beyond what they want to have happen, which is the most hopeless, helpless feeling. I don't know how to describe it. Just to know that you're completely at the mercy. Whatever, something bad is going to happen and there's nothing you can do. It's going to happen is, is, just such a horrific feeling. And I thought, pretend you didn't hear him. Just pretend you didn't hear him. And as I'm walking, I'm looking to my right. So to my left is the river, and to my right is this is where the valley starts rushing up towards the top. So I'm looking for breaks in the brush, thinking if I can get to the trail, I can bolt up the trail, and at least I'll have higher ground, and maybe I can throw stuff at them. I don't know. You know, I'm trying to think of how I'll be able to protect myself in this situation. Didn't have a lot of options. I remember just holding my pepper spray. It was literally at that time when he first threatened me that I went, okay, it's, it's going down. Something's going to go down here. 
I took my, my pepper spray in my hand and I made sure I was holding it really tight. And I, I tried to walk faster, but I didn't want to excite the dog too much. So I was just walking faster, desperately looking for any sign that this trail was coming up and already starting to get weak. It's, it's funny. I always used to think that adrenaline would make you strong and it really doesn't. It makes you, it makes you feel quite weak. I felt like my legs were kind of melting. I feel my knees sort of dissolving. And I thought, shit, <laughs> I have to try and try and keep it together. And I make trying to talk my body into cooperating with me. I was like, I'm probably going to need to do something. So just praying for, for some sort of physical strength to stay with me. So I didn't respond to them at all. And he said, give me your bag. And then the one guy came running up behind me. And he said, I want sex. And I just, I just said, no. But the funny thing as well is that he, he was asking me quite politely, please, please, I want sex. Please give me sex. I want sex like that. And I kept on saying, no, it's, it's amazing the stuff that comes out of your mouth <laughs> in these moments. Cause I, I, I turned to him and I said, I don't even know you. Because taking it on face value, it was just so bizarre to me that, that he would ask me, like, I'm going to say yes. Like, in what world would I be okay with that? You know, it was, it was just so, so bizarre. The fact that he was asking politely is almost creepier than if he was just demanding. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, you don't quite know what to make of it, which is which is why I think I, I was, we were almost conversing because it wasn't this aggressive thing. I mean, okay, the one guy had threatened to kill me, <laughs> but beyond that, this this was an exchange. It was almost like he was trying to create a space where we're negotiating or something. Anyway, so I said no, and as I'm walking, he starts groping me. So he starts trying to sort of grab me as I'm walking, and I, I just stopped and I stood. And I don't know why I didn't spray him with pepper spray then. I don't know. I, I don't know why. But I, I couldn't stand that they were behind me the whole time. Now he started trying to touch me, and I've got my back to them, and, and I can't cope with that. So I said to him, go ahead, leave me alone, and go ahead. And I pointed up the trail in the direction that I wanted them to go. And he stood there and he smiled at me. We just stood there smiling. And we, we just had a kind of standoff. Again, he didn't do anything. He just stood there. He didn't, when I turned to face him, he stopped trying to touch me and he just looked at me and, and I tried to tell him where to go and he, he smiled. Um, and there was a, a couple seconds like that. And then I thought, I, I have to go. I don't know what to do. I have to go. And I, I started walking again. Same thing. He didn't follow me at first. So I'm walking. I don't hear, he's not following me anymore. And I hear the dog panting behind me. The, um, this dog is still tracking me. And then suddenly I hear this rush of footsteps and he runs and he tries to tackle me to the ground. So he came up behind me and he tried to sort of hook me around the waist and tried to knock me down onto the ground. And I, I didn't, I didn't fall. I stayed on my feet. I think that was the first surprise for them is that I didn't go down. I think they were expecting me to just collapse and I didn't. I stayed on my feet. And, you know, the, the other guy was, had run up as well. So now I'm facing the two of them. So now we're, 
it's three of us facing each other. And then they start saying, give us sex, we'll kill you. And then the other guy punched me. He hit me, he hit me through the face. He got me just, just by my, my left eye. Yeah, he got me pretty good. But again, I didn't, I didn't go down. I stayed on my feet. This I can only attribute to, to boxing training. Honestly, I'd done two years of um, boxing training, training with, with amazing guys, uh, with along, not just, not just for fitness, but also sparring. So I, I've been in, in sparring situations. So this guy punches me through the face and I had this voice in my head say to me, Hey, you're in a fight now and you know how to fight. So you need to fight. And I left hooked him and I got him on the jaw. It wasn't a spectacularly hard punch. Again, something in the adrenaline had really sapped the strength out of me. It was like, I felt like jelly, you know, it was, it was hard work moving, but I still got him on the jaw and he stumbled back the the look of surprise on his face was beautiful <laughs> when i think back on this it's one of those moments that i look back on and i feel you know a bit vindicated i feel i feel good about that you know that he, he didn't see that coming at all there was no expectation that i would actually attack back yeah and everybody listening right now feels really good about <laughs> it too yeah um i just wish it had been harder there was this kind of stunned, this, this sort of moment where he was a bit stunned. Then it all just becomes a jumble. I sprayed my pepper spray. I finally remembered that I had it in my hand. I couldn't get their eyes though. Um, the one guy knocked it out of my hand very quickly. And I was so furious with myself because when I took it out of its holster earlier, I'd said to myself, you do not let go of this. No matter what happens, you keep hold of this. And um, they got it out of my hand almost immediately. So then in, in between there, I, I get punched a few more times. I managed to get a couple of jabs back in. This is not elegant fighting. <laughs> this is really messy. Um, this is me just trying to stay on my feet. And for every hit that they get in, I try to get one back. And then the other guy comes to my side and he grabs my right arm and he pulls me onto the, onto the ground. And then, and then I was off my feet and then I was on the ground. So I hit the ground and the guy picked up my pepper spray. One of them picked up the pepper spray and he held it in my face and he said, you see this? You see this? And, uh, I was staring at my own pepper spray. Again, they didn't spray me though, which, which I've wondered about. I think to a certain degree, they, they wanted my compliance, if that makes sense. I don't know. I don't know. I'll, I'll never understand why. I'm, I'm very glad that they didn't, but it's, it's, it's kind of strange that he threatened me with it without actually attacking me with it. That is very unusual. But that if he had, that could have changed the whole outcome of this. Big time. Yeah. Yeah. But it should have been so clear to them at this point that you were not going to comply. Well, this was, this was the only thing that I had really going for me, you know, two against one. The only thing I could do was, was keep showing them over and over again that whatever they were going to do, I was not going to make it easy for them. That was really my only option was to make it as difficult for them as I could manage, you know, which is what I was going for the whole time was just, just to keep, 
fighting. That's why I was so mad at myself when I when I dropped the pepper spray and and when I went to the ground, I knew this is a game changer now. Whatever small victories I'd had while I was on my feet, you know, that, who knew what was going to happen now? So one guy starts starts grabbing me again and trying to get my clothes off. I'm fighting him. I'm trying to. At one point, I got knocked back onto my back. As soon as my my head hit the ground, the guy who who was standing over me, he lifted his his foot and he stood on my head. So he pressed his boot into the side of my face and pushed my face into the earth. So he was pinning me by the head under his under his boot. There's, there's really not a lot you can do when someone's standing on your head, fight wise. It was just so despicable. And then the guy says to me, as soon as I'm pinned, and I can't fight anymore, at least not as effectively. The guy says to me, don't scream. And it suddenly occurred to me that I hadn't screamed. Not once. Not once in this entire thing so far. I thought, yeah, screaming. That's a great idea. I should, I should do that. <laughs> and I screamed. And even as I screamed, I knew, hey, even if someone hears you. There's no way they're going to know where to find you. And even if they have a rough idea of where where to look, they, they won't be able to get to you very quickly because of the, the nature of the terrain. So I knew it didn't really do much good. And then, I don't know, in between him groping me and, and stuff, I, I don't really know what happened, but I, I disassociated for a little while. And I don't know, it would have been just a second or two, but... There's a, there's a black space there where I suddenly came to and I realized that I wasn't fighting anymore, that I was just lying completely still. That this guy was standing on my head. His friend was, was kind of kneeling in front of me between my legs, trying to, trying to get my clothes off. And I wasn't doing anything. I was just lying completely still. And then he was touching me. At some point, my, my, my pants had ripped. And he was, he was trying to touch me between my legs. And I realized he's, I realized he's going to rape me now. He's, he's getting ready to rape me. <laughs> it came from this, this black state of nothingness, just this fugue blankness where I wasn't fighting to suddenly waking up and registering that this is, this is real. And this is, this is the last chance. This is my last moment to do something. Because I knew that if, if he does, they're probably going to kill me. And even if they don't, I will kill myself because I won't know how to live with it. I, I'm, I just knew there's no way, there's no way I can survive this one way or the other. If this happens, I'm not going to come back and, and I can't cope with it. So there was this voice in my head that was just trying to get me to rally. And it, it just, just this realization that, that this really was the, the last chance that I had to stop this. And I don't know where I got the strength from, but I, I pulled my knee back and I, I kicked him in the chest. I kicked him square in the chest. And in a, in a way, it's an advantage that I disassociated because I'd been lying passive. So he really wasn't expecting it. So I, I got him solid in the chest and quite hard. And he fell backwards. And as soon as he did that, the guy who was standing on my head, he, I don't know why, maybe in surprise, I don't know. He lifted his boot and I was able to move out from underneath his shoe 
And then I was just kicking again. I was, I was, you know, on the ground and I was just thrashing. And then the, the guy said to, then he said, let's just go. He said to his friend, let's just go. This is the guy who was standing on my head. He says, let's just go. Let's just go. I don't think it was that it was one specific power moment. I think it was just the fact that I had not stopped fighting really throughout. And I was making it clear that I was going to keep fighting. So it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it for them. So then somehow my backpack, it had come off my back, but it was sort of looped through my elbow kind of thing on my arm. Um, and then the one guy has the presence of mind still to, to bend down and to grab my, my pack and, and pull it. And, and there was a bizarre moment there where I was actually fighting him. Like I didn't want him to take my pack. So I was holding my, my arm close to my chest to stop him from pulling it away. And then I realized, are you crazy? Are you crazy? They are trying to leave. Let them go. Let them take the goddamn pack. And I let them go. They grabbed my pack and then they ran off and their dogs followed them. And they were gone. <laughs> so it's like a combination of relief, but still, you, you obviously you're still in shock. I, I, I don't, I don't think I really had a minute to celebrate. I, I just lay there for for a minute or two again probably disassociated or kind of fugued out i don't know but then i realized you know you're, you're still lying in the road they could come back the least you can do is hide maybe hide so that if they do come around you're not immediately obvious you know so i crawled off the road and i, I crawled down this little bank towards the river side and, and into the brush there and i i hid I found it and just tried to get behind some bushes and I, I, I hid. I just lay there in the dirt and um, I tried to get my breathing under control. And then I tried to make myself as still and as quiet as I could. And I just, I just hunkered down and I listened. I was listening for the sound of the dogs coming back. I was listening for the sound of voices, footsteps, anything. I just tried to make myself as still and as small as possible. And I just hid and I listened. And that was all I did. There's no thought. There's just listening. Now I know how prey animals feel, you know, when they're hiding in the, in the undergrowth. Now I, I know how they feel. When you see a rabbit quivering in the grass, I know exactly how it feels. Time does a very, very, very strange thing when you've got that much adrenaline in your system. It could have been anywhere from 10 minutes to half an hour. I, I have no idea. But somewhere in that point, I realized, okay, so the longer you stay here, the worse you actually make it for yourself. Again, there's no guarantee that they won't come back. They, they threatened to kill me repeatedly throughout the attack. You know, they kept on saying, we'll kill you, we'll kill you. It's hard to explain that to people because these words are just words. But when they are directed at you like that, they really, they, you really feel them. They really mean something. You, you understand the, the full weight of that kind of threat when someone says, I'll kill you, and they mean it. So I don't know. Um, I'd sort of shaken them off, but they would have realized that I'm weak, that I'm, you know, injured. And there's nothing to say that they won't decide, hey, you know, she's still alone. She can't have got far. Let's just go back and, and stab her. Yeah, they could have, you know, I don't know. So I realized I need to, I need to get away from this spot. I need to get away from here. Even if I don't find whatever it is, I, I have to, to be somewhere that they wouldn't know to find me if that makes sense. So I figured you've got to move as hard as it is. Cause I was starting to feel a little bit safe. I was like, you, you, 
you're not safe. You need to move. I picked myself up and I started walking. And, and this time I had to just commit myself to going a direction I didn't know and muddling through and finding a trail. Look, I mean, it's pretty intuitive. I know I knew I needed to go up to get to the dirt road. It was just a case of how, you know, but I knew the general direction to go in. So I started walking and I felt so exposed on that road, on that bottom trail. I couldn't wait to cut up into the undergrowth. The thing is, though, it's, it's very steep. It's got thorn bushes. It's, it's really overgrown and, and wild. You know, you can't just go up. <laughs> you have to look for a break. You have to look for a way that you can push through. The whole while that I was walking, I was desperately searching to my left, trying to look for something that, that looked like I could get through. And eventually I found, I found a trail I'd never seen before. It, it was like more like an animal trail. I, I'm not too sure. It was really, really, really narrow <laughs> and really overgrown. So I don't know if it was a disused trail or if it was an animal trail or what it was, but it, it looked you know, clear enough that I could get through. And at this point, you're traumatized, you're exhausted. Uh, did you have any water? No, they took, because everything was in my pack. So they had my, they had my water. I was so thirsty. I cannot tell you. I didn't quite realize it then. I realized it when I was going up the terrain and it started getting steep. That was when I started to get some sense back. I was physically completely numb. And because I'd been punched in the face a few times that I had, my mouth was cut inside. So all I could taste was blood. And other than that, my mouth was completely dry. So I had just this, this metal in my mouth and torn clothes and I could feel my face swelling up and no water, nothing. It's pretty tough going like that. I didn't know how long it was going to take me to go topside. I was terrified of hearing the sound of dogs coming up behind me, petrified. So I would go up a couple meters and then I would stop and I would listen. I would stop breathing and I would just listen. And I would, until I, I had to really convince myself, like, no, there's no sound. Because as soon as I started moving, I was making sounds. So I couldn't listen, you know? So it, it was a, a bit of a fight with myself. You know, you, you can't stand here frozen listening to dogs all night. <laughs> You've got to keep moving. And that state of hyper-awareness is just mentally exhausting, isn't it? It's horrific. And, and here's, here's the other part. I didn't snap out of it for months. Not for months. It's, it's a state of hypervigilance. It's, it's a, one of the things of, um, that you go through with, with, at least with my, you know, PTSD. Your, your brain doesn't, doesn't quite snap all the way out of it. So you're in this hypervigilant state. I was also acutely aware of the fact that I had no weapons. I didn't have anything. I was also very weak now, so I knew they did come back. I don't know how well I'll be able to fight, if at all. So I was looking for rocks. So as I was moving up, I was, I was grabbing these rocks and I was, I could only carry so many at a time. So I had these rocks in my hands. I'd find a better one. I'd throw one. And the plan was that if they came up behind me or if a dog came up behind me, I would just stop helping it. So I was, you know, hiking up, just, just swapping these rocks in and out of my hands. Trying to go up. Bear in mind, because it's so it's so steep, you, you can't really look ahead. Looking ahead means looking up. It just felt like everything was 
everything was too much to focus on. So all I could do was focus on how to keep myself moving. I wanted, I just wanted to lie down. That was all I wanted. I just wanted to lie down and disappear. I wanted the world to go away. I wanted to, I was so tired and so thirsty and I, I don't know how to explain it, but I just wanted absolute stillness. And I knew I still had a ways to go. You know, I, I, I still, I still wasn't safe. I wasn't back home. Um, they could, you know, feasibly still come after me. I didn't think it was likely, but it wasn't impossible. And I didn't know where I was going to come out. I didn't know how long a hike it was going to take me to get to the top, how long to get to my car. Even when I reached my car, I didn't have my keys anymore because they were in my pack. So I wouldn't be able to just get into my car and drive out. I would have quite a walk ahead of me. By the time I reached the reserve reception, it would probably be closed. And all these things to worry about, all these things to think about. That I just, there was no, no time to relax, no time to look after myself. I remember this, this is where it gets interesting because it's almost like my mind split. And I tried explaining this to a psychologist. Like, it's like I became the mother and I became the child. The child was saying, please, can I sit down? You know, I was saying, I'm so tired. I'm so thirsty. Please, can I sit down? And the mother would say, I know you are, but you can't yet, you know, in the sweetest voice. So you've, you've got to keep going. And I would, I was making these little bargains with myself. I was saying, okay, you see that tree up there? When you reach that point, you can sit down for 10 seconds and you can breathe and you can catch a breath and, and I'll let you relax for 10 seconds. Is that okay? I was making these little deals. Then I'd reach the tree and I'd sit down for 10 seconds and I'd want to just stay there forever. <laughs> And then the voice would come back and say, honey, you've got to move now. You can't stay here. You see that? Let's go, let's go for that rock. Let's, let's walk. Let's keep moving and you don't stop until you reach that rock and then you can stop again. You know, trying, trying to get myself to keep moving from point to point until I'd reach the top. That's just, I'm just fascinated by that. The, the way the, the mind can come up with methods for self-preservation and survival. Mm. That's, that's just incredible. This is where it's, it's so profound and, and really so beautiful. And, and I don't know if I'll ever have the words to adequately describe to people what it was like, but I formed a connection with myself in those hours on that hike that is so close and so special and so beautiful and so unique. I mean, I've always had a good relationship with myself always you know I, I like doing things alone i enjoy my own company you know loved hiking on my own loved being in my own mind and my own space it's always been really nice for me but this was this was a whole other level of of love and care from like a higher version of myself speaking to the me that's in trouble and and just encouraging me to make it to survive and and to make it out of this I read where you, one of the things you wrote about this was that you said, I was in the deepest conversation with my soul. Mm. That's just something that I think very few people experience. Yeah. I don't have words for how lovely it is. And it's terrible that it comes at such a price, but it's, but it's a completely remarkable thing. And honestly, it's, it's the only thing that got me through. And I don't just mean on that day, I mean in the months that followed as well. It's a bond that's never been broken. Whatever's going on in my life, that voice is still there to talk me through. And, and I feel like I know myself 
on a level that's really profound and complex and multi-layered. You know, I, I know myself from quite a few different perspectives. So I kept going and then suddenly this trail widened. I suddenly popped out at this quite nice, recently redone campsite, which I'd never seen before and didn't know was there with these little wooden hut things. They're not like full protection, but they're, you know, for so if people are overnighting and they need shelter. And it was clear and it was quite clean. It, it obviously been recently built and recently installed. And and here it's it's strange because I had a very strange reaction. I didn't think, oh yay. I thought, oh shit. <laughs> because I didn't know who was there. And and I I thought about it after and I thought, you know, even if it, the game ranger was there, I probably would have hid from him. Anyone I saw in that moment, I probably would have hidden from them. I don't know how to explain that, but I, to me, a stranger wasn't in that context. If I ran into anyone, it wasn't going to feel safe for me. I, I don't know. I was terrified. The other thing is that there's nothing to say that the poachers don't use that as a base. They might. You know, a lot of the, the similar sort of campsites within that reserve have been gone, have gone to ruin and there's signs of the poachers using them. So I don't know. I thought, shit, some guy could step out there with, I don't know, they, they would have weapons here. I, I don't know. But there was a tap. There was an outside tap. It had water. And um, I didn't know if, if it was connected to any pipes, but I could see a tap there. <laughs> I need water. I want water so bad. And I, I kind of edged around. I hid in the bush and kind of edged around. And I, I listened, listened, listened for any, anything to, to indicate that there were people. Didn't hear anybody. Eventually decided, okay, no, it's, it's safe enough. Let's go see if there's water in this tap. And I opened the tap and water came out. And it was the most beautiful thing. <laughs> I, I've never been so happy about a tap opening. <laughs> So I was just gulping back water and just frantic. Um, and then, and then the mommy voice came in again and said, listen, you, you can't drink too much. You're going to throw it up. Stop. <laughs> so I had to stop myself from drinking. I, I would have, I wouldn't have moved. I mean, it, it was, yeah, it was amazing. And then it became the next thing of thinking maybe I should stay the night here. You know, I, I just, it's the child that just wants to go to sleep. You know, the child is speaking again and saying, please, can I just curl up? You know, it looks safe. There's water here. Can we just stay? Going, no, you can't. We've got to you have to keep moving. We're not safe until not safe until you're home. That was the first time I wanted to cry was when I left that campsite. Up until then, I, I hadn't cried or wanted to cry. It was the first time I felt like I need to cry. But I knew that if I let myself cry, I would lose all strength and resolve. I knew that. Again, the mother voice saying, when you're home, you can cry as much as you want. But until we're home, no, it's a no. Yeah, you can't spend that energy because you need it. Absolutely. Absolutely. As much as you want to. And it's also almost like a luxury thing. You know, you have to be in a safe place to cry. Really? You know, you have to. So it, it was just a hard no. And that was so difficult. Uh, having to leave and not letting myself cry profoundly difficult and there was still a lot of steep steep stuff to deal with ahead of me so I kept going 
at least this time now I was properly on a trail. So, you know, I, I knew I was, I knew that the top was getting closer with each step. I just reached a kind of halfway point, I guess. So things were looking up. I was making good progress. I just had to keep moving and I kept on pushing. And then finally, finally, I looked up and I saw sky through the, through the branches at the top, which meant that it was flat up there. So I was about to break out onto the top. I was about to exit the valley and reach the top road. And, and I knew it was then, then I could consider myself safe, not home yet, but safe enough for now. So there we go. So I pushed out of the valley and now, now I'm on the dirt road. I'm at the top and I'm under the blue sky. I'm out of the, I'm out of the valley. And um, again, I just wanted to lie down. I just wanted it to be over. I just wanted the whole world to go away and there's no time. At this point, I was actually starting to feel pain as well from my injuries and stuff. My face was throbbing. I don't know if it was the water that woke up my nerves or what, but I, I was aching and I could feel how much my face was swelling on the side. I knew the sun was going to, was already dipping down. Uh, which meant that there wouldn't be many people in the valley soon. I, d I was quite far out. So I, I mean, I was pretty far from my car. The way I'd had to hike was quite the other way. And I didn't know if any day visitors would have driven their cars past that point to go and hike on that side of the valley. I didn't know. I knew there was a fair chance, but no guarantee. So I thought, okay, now being... Being a, a true crime, you know, fan and having, you know, read lots of books on true crime and being a horror fan, I, I know how this goes. And, and it's a, a terrible, sad thing that um, people in this situation, if they are in the middle of the road, often people will drive around them when they're in distress. And I thought, even if someone comes across me, there's a chance that they will do that because obviously I'm a mess. <laughs> And I thought, no, I, I most absolutely, I'm not going to let that happen. If a car comes up behind me, they are not going around me. And I looked on the ground and I found, I found the perfect stick. I found this stick because I was still very aware that I didn't have any weapons. And I thought, you still don't know that you're a hundred percent safe. Probably are, but we don't know. So I found a stick that was quite a nice length, quite a nice thickness and had this wonderful broken point, really sharp point. Great stick, fantastic stick. <laughs> so I walked right in the middle of this road with this stick and I thought, I am just going to keep going one foot in front of the other, me and the stick, and we're just going to keep going. And I just headed in the direction of my car because there was really nothing else to do. If someone came up behind me, great. If they didn't, then I was just going to have to force myself to keep walking until I reached the reception. If it was closed up and locked, then I would just sleep by the front door and whatever, you know deal with what may come but I had so long as I was moving in the right direction back to safety that was fine so I had to just keep going like that there are no words for how exhausted I was it was such an effort to make my feet keep moving and every time there was the slightest uphill incline I would want to just stop and lie down because I couldn't face the uphill you know even if it was just a slight rise in the road I, I just it was so hard making myself move. And again, it's the mom voice. It's just, you have to, you have to. I'm sorry, but you have to. So 
one foot in front of the other. You don't have to run. This isn't a race. But just so long as you're making progress, it's good. So let's just keep going. And I have to keep encouraging myself like that. I walked for ages. I found my car. That was another really hard <laughs> moment. Because my car, you know, I left that. When I left that car there, I was a completely different person. Excited to go swim in the river, you know. There's my car waiting for me and I can't get in. There's nothing I can do. I have to just keep walking, leave it behind. So I kept going. And then it was, I mean, ages and ages and ages, ages and ages. And then eventually, finally, I heard a car coming up behind me. And I turned around. And because I was slap bang in the middle of the road, they couldn't go around me. So I turned and I faced them and I, I waved my arms in the SOS. And I walked around to the passenger side and the woman rolled down her window and I said, please help me, I've been attacked. <sighs> and, and that was when I knew, okay, I'm, I'm going to get out of this now. And they let me in the car and they drove me home. <laughs> It was a, a woman and a man, so they, they're rock climbers, and they'd been climbing where the cliffs are at the far back end of the valley. All the hikers had left for the day. It was just you know, a couple of rock climbers coming back from a day climbing. And you were obviously so thankful that they were coming back. There are, there are no words. I mean, I, I, I said to them later, you know, I said, you, you, you guys don't know. You guys don't know how profound that was for me. When when that when you stopped the car and and when you let me get in the car, it wasn't just that they let me in the car because they was they would say to me like we just gave you a lift, you know, you did all the hard work yourself. We just we just drove you out there. It's like you don't understand, you don't understand how it felt. I I was at the point of collapse. I I had pushed myself to the end. Every last edge of strength and resolve had been sapped out of me. I, I had given everything I could down to the last drop. I doubt I would have made it to, to the reserve reception, actually. I'm pretty sure I would have just collapsed at some point on that road. And she was so kind as well. I mean, she, she just turned, she said to me, did they rape you? And I said, no, but they tried. <laughs> and, and she, you know, I showed her how my, my clothes were torn kind of between my legs and she was, she was just so kind. How she spoke to me was, was just perfect. I know people say they just gave you a lift, but it, it was so much more than that. When you're, when someone lifts you out of that situation, it's, it's so much more than that. I will forever be grateful. I, I will never know how to express that adequately, what that felt like in that moment. So I was staying. On my mom's property, I was staying in a cottage on my mom's property. So she kept uh, my, I, long before, because I'd, I'd only moved to the area quite recently. I moved back home, basically, moved back to the area really recently. And one of the things I did is I gave her my spare car key. And I said, won't you hold on to this? Because I'd rather I didn't have it just in case something happens. You can drive my car. You know, it just makes sense. So I got the spare key. And then my rescuers, they... They went back into the reserve and they brought my car back for me. From there, I had to go to the hospital, to the emergency room there, to, so they, they could look me over. 
and confirm my injuries and then give me the report because, of course, you know, let's go to the police. The next thing after that was going to the police station to report what had happened. I mean, I didn't want to do the the hospital thing. I mean, I knew I was injured, but nothing major. I knew I'd be fine. And if, if I could have left the police out of it as well, I would in that moment anyway. But you got to do what you got to do, apparently. So, Would you recognize either of those men if you saw them again? Yeah. Now? Yeah, in a heartbeat. No problem. I did give the police, a, the, the police did get a sketch artist person to come and so I could do a composite sketch with, with the guy who was so determined to rape me. So I saw his face much more than the, than the other guy. So I gave a description of, of him. At this time, now that you're safe, did you consider that this attack may have affected you more from a mental health standpoint? Um... I think it takes a while for the shock to kind of balance out. I don't want to say wear off because it, it didn't, not for a while, but kind of just taper to a balanced point. I don't really know what to say about my mental state in the immediate aftermath. I mean, even even the, the, the people who rescued me, I mean, the guy, you know, when we were organizing my keys and getting my car brought back, he looked at me and he said, how are you still standing? Because at that point, I hadn't cried yet either. <laughs> you know, I was, I was in organized mode. I was trying to get my car back. And, and this is actually a problem with me is I present quite well. It's funny. Like you, someone might see I'm upset about something really small. That's more visible than if I'm upset on a more profound level. So I was largely presenting fine. I looked like I had my shit together. Um, but inside, I was a mess. I think it was the first time I cried, I think was in the shower, properly cried. I, I couldn't wait to get clean. And then for days after, I was finding, you wouldn't believe the bruises all over me. One morning I was standing in front of a mirror and I was tying up my hair. And as I lifted my arm, I suddenly saw this perfect handprint bruise on my upper arm. I mean, you could just about read his fingerprints. Never mind my face, from when the guide stood on my head, you could actually see the tread marks from his boot in my face. And it was a case of looking in the mirror and seeing these old temporary Im injuries, but, but they were so detailed, like being able to see the tread of a boot, being able to see a handprint bruise. It was so confronting. I was looking at it going, they did this to me. They, they did this to me. And, and just this, this rage and, and heartbreak. I don't know how else to explain it, but just my fury that, that this had happened and, and my sadness about it. I think also listening to your, your, um, episode with Kira, she mentioned it in, in hers where she talks about how people don't understand what it's like when someone threatens to kill you. When you, or when you know that someone is, is willing to kill you. To me, it was amazing that my life meant nothing. Nothing. I, I was just momentary ent entertainment for these guys. They wanted to have sex with me and they were willing to kill me. And they would have done that for fun. That's, that's an afternoon's entertainment for them. My life. It doesn't matter who I am. 
my how kind I am or not or intelligent or not or, or my contributions to pe- my family my my myself whatever that is but the, the wholeness of my own being is completely irrelevant I am just a body that they want to play with and and I don't exist beyond that it's a really hard thing to get your head around just how someone can think of you, anyone that way and then treat you like that you know, like, like I don't have a soul, like there's no soul. And then of course I realized, that, I mean, I spent a few days and I just stayed home. I didn't go anywhere. I didn't do anything. I just stayed home and hid, you know, <laughs> took multiple showers and, and, um, waited for my bruises to fade a bit. You know, there comes a point where you need to go out and sort of slowly start facing the world properly again. And the first time I, I started doing that was when I realized that, that I now have panic attacks to deal with in my future. I, I couldn't handle having people behind me at all. And I couldn't handle crowds. I couldn't handle people standing too close to me. I wanted anyone in the room to be, I didn't, whether I knew them or not, I needed everyone to be so that I could see them. So I know exactly where everyone is. I can, I can kind of out the corner of my eye watch what everyone's doing. And this isn't something that you're consciously deciding. I mean, psychologists explained it to me later. It's just, it's just pure hypervigilance. And that's why I was so exhausted. Any amount of interaction out with other people was, was beyond exhausting. And it's because your subconscious mind is not resting. It's on high alert. It's trying to keep track of everything, watching for signs that, that you're in danger. It's really exhausting. Grocery shopping was was a nightmare of epic proportions. I cannot begin to tell you. Walking through aisles, you know, in supermarket aisles. Holy shit. <laughs> so hard. So difficult. I still struggle with it. I, I haven't been able to go grocery shopping since this, this happened and, and be completely chill and just doing my thing. I'm obviously I'm I'm handling it a lot better now, but there's still that certain edginess and when that happens, I just give myself permission to just flatten my back to the wall, to the display, and just stand <laughs> and look around until I feel ready to move again. It's, it's again, I've, I've never quite recovered a sense of ease with my back being exposed. I think it's because I spent so much time during the attack trying to walk away and then being attacked from behind. And that was a huge issue for me so much on that trail was the fact that they were behind me and I couldn't do anything about it, you know? We haven't mentioned yet what your career is, but I'll say it now. You're an author of horror fiction. And one of the, one of the really interesting things you told me is that you've seen horror as therapy. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, okay. Would you say elaborate strap in? Um, for me, one of the, one of the hardest aspects of trauma when you go through it to deal with is how other people don't want to talk about it and they don't want to deal with it. So when something really awful happens, you're often left to deal with it alone. There's a lot of hand patting. You know, people go, Oh dear, I'm so sorry that happened to you. And it's, it's all lip service. There's very little, it's very few people who will actually sit with you which is fine there's no pressure on them really but it's a very lonely place and and i i find that with horror people tend to people who connect with horror often do because it it has some degree of cathartic value for them you you can confront your monster 
at a remove. Like horror fiction as an art form creates a remove. So instead of having to, to deal with the actual fact of something, you can create a story around it. You can put it in the corner. You can analyze it. You can discuss it. You can do things to it. You can have it do things. You can see how it reacts. You can understand what you're facing. This is the power of, of horror. And I always found it to be extremely useful. I always said that horror is the most honest of all the genres. It won't cut away. You know, there's no, there's no glossing over. Um, it'll be honest about the bad things that people do and are capable of in the really real world. It doesn't kid itself and it doesn't kid you, which I, I find to be quite valuable. Um, you know, just because you're a fan of horror doesn't mean that you like people getting hurt. It's, it's quite the opposite. It's a, it's an act of empathy. You know, if you didn't care about what happened to the, to the character, it wouldn't be horrific. You know, it wouldn't horrify you. So when you're watching or reading horror, that is what you are doing. You're identifying with the character and identifying with what they're going through. You know, I mean, when I was hiding off the trail after, after my attackers ran off and I, I was hiding there, I had that thought where I realized, you know, I, I have seen this scene in so many movies. I have seen women in this exact situation so many times. Now I'm the one hiding in the bushes, quivering with blood in her mouth. It's me now. And they might come back and kill me. I've got to move. Uh, a friend of mine, also a horror writer, he, he joked with me sort of, sort of saying, and in a way you've been in, you were in training for that day your whole life, <laughs> which I suppose is true. Have you thought about incorporating some aspects of this experience into future writing? That's a really tough one. So this is the funny thing is that since this attack, I haven't been able to finish anything. I haven't written any new books. I haven't finished. I've started tons, but I haven't finished anything. I think the first short story that I tried to write after the attack, I decided, okay, I don't want to write about the attack. I want to write fiction. I'm a fiction author. Thanks. I don't need to tell my life story. So I'm going to write a completely different story. And I started writing a story about a woman who goes for a job interview. It's in this building with a big lobby and an elevator and with a bunch of elevators. And she gets in an elevator and then it stops off on another floor. And then this other guy gets in. They have a few words of pleasant conversation. And then the elevator jams and she's stuck between floors. And then she's stuck for a while with this guy. And as they're talking, he becomes more and more threatening and creepy. And their conversation changes until she's in a... I was halfway through this thing where I, when I realized I'm writing about the attack. I tried to put it in an urban setting. <laughs> and I thought, God damn it, I'm not doing this. I don't want to do this. I can't do this. So I never finished it. It's been two years now. I, and as much as I keep telling myself, you know, they, they, I refuse to have my ability to enjoy life taken from me. And I refuse to have the things that I've done in the past be taken from me because of this. Something has definitely happened to how I create. I have started another book. I've gotten further with this one now than any other since the attack. I'm hoping I will actually finish this one. But I've definitely changed as an artist. And it's just a case of figuring out how much and what that means in terms of my own creative process and what I create. I'll still go with, I mean, I'm, 
we say horror. I'm, I'm a dark fiction author. I don't really write about monsters and stuff. I write about people and what people do. So I think when you're an artist, you're always talking about yourself, whether you know it or not in your work. It just comes with the territory. So I'm sure I will be writing about this attack many ways, many, many times in the future. And, and just, it just won't be obvious. Maybe. How can people find you or check out your work? Um, they're welcome to Google my name. That should return quite a few. Um, otherwise, there's my Amazon author page, which has all the stuff I've written together in one place. I am on Twitter. I just don't really use it. I, I vastly prefer Instagram. I've only just recently started using Instagram. I'm a bit, I've, it's been, I've been slow to this whole social media thing. <laughs> I'm not the biggest fan of it because I'm actually quite a private person. So for me, it's been a, a case of trying to strike a balance between how much of myself do I want to share with people. We'll have links to your Amazon author page and your other social accounts. So if, if people want to follow you, I've followed you on Amazon and I'm looking forward to when I get that notification that you've got a, a new release. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Give, give me like a year. <laughs> and one other thing I wanted to ask you about, part of your recovery or therapy, so to speak, you've discovered rock climbing. How did that fit in? Through my rescuers. So like I mentioned, they're rock climbers and they were coming back and they, they were lovely. So once I'd kind of recovered a little bit, I messaged them and I said, you know, hey, I'd like you to see what I look like when I'm not, you know, <laughs> completely shredded. Can I buy you guys dinner just to say thank you? And I hung out with them and, and I had dinner. We had dinner together. And then um, the woman, she's, she's, she's such a wonderful person. She's become a pretty solid friend of mine since. She just said to me, you know, we're going climbing again tomorrow. Why don't you come with us? And I was like, What? Understand, I, I grew up doing adventure sports and outdoors stuff, hiking and horse riding, cross country, all, all these things. But rock climbing had never really come up. One of my brothers is a rock climber, um, actually, but I was always on horses and stuff. So I never really, so rock climbing wasn't something that I really thought about. And they said, no, come with, you know, and I thought, well, yeah, why not? And I missed being in nature. You know, this, this is the thing is I, I was determined not to be kicked out of the hills and the mountains that I love because of these two bastards. Because that to me is no longer a life. If I can't be out enjoying the world and exploring the world, I don't want to be here. <laughs> That's how I feel about it. Um, it's important to me. And if you went with them, that means you're, you're back in that environment, but you're also not alone either. And completely safe. I mean, it was almost like a, I mean, of all the people and all my fear after that, my, you know, PTSD effects of trauma and panic attacks and feeling really nervy about people being close to me, those two, no problems. I, it was just a shortcut to me instantly feeling completely safe with them. I felt totally safe with them. So they took me, and here's the thing, they took me to the same nature reserve because it has great rock climbing. So the same place where I was attacked, but a completely different side of, of the reserve. So not a part of the reserve that I knew at all. Actually, it was my first time going that far. I didn't even know that this existed in this park. I'd always just gone for the river. I didn't think about the cliffs. It took me climbing. And, and the great thing about rock climbing is you're hiking as well. You know, on the walk-in, you are hiking beautiful terrain to get to where you want to be climbing. 
and then you're having this wonderful adventure. So the thing with, with rock climbing is that it, it's a very unique sport in that it engages your fight flight in a very productive way. <laughs> and I find that incredibly healing. So, so the woman who, who was in the car that day, she, she said to me once, the great thing about climbing is when you are on the wall, you cannot think about anything else. There is no space in your mind for anything except your next move. You can't worry about your overdue bills or the sound your car is making or your sick dog. None of that can enter your head because you are fully focused on getting from the next point, from the point you're on to the next point and getting to the top. That is all you have space for mentally. And it's so true. It's a kind of, you know, meditation almost in that respect. And you're engaging with yourself. And when I want to be close to my inner voice again, that is what I get from climbing. That bond with myself, I feel it very closely, as well as it just being so much fun. So, so they took me climbing that day and, you know, climbing's pretty scary. <laughs> um, and at the same time, you're having so much fun. And, and I've learned now that I've, I've been climbing a little while that actually the best climbing days for me are the days where I was really scared and I did it anyway. You know, climbing is a constant lesson and, and you looking and going, there's no way I can do this. Holy shit, this is terrifying. I want to go home and, and thinking you can't do it. And then you do it and you conquer it and, and you feel so good and you come down and you just feel absolutely undefeatable, indestructible. Even if you climbed an easy grade, it doesn't matter. You, you know, if you have that moment where you challenge yourself and you overcome, it's such a good thing. It's the most rewarding thing ever. That sounds like great therapy to me. It really is. It really, really is. You know, COVID's got in the way and a few other things have got in the way and I haven't been able to climb as much, but I grab every opportunity that I can to head out there. Uh, the other thing with rock climbing is that it's not a solo sport. So um, unless you're Alex Honnold, <laughs> you need people with you. In a way, that's a sad thing because I, I haven't been solo hiking again. I, I don't think I ever will go hiking on my own ever again. I, I'm pretty sure I won't. I might go with my dog. That's probably the closest I'll get to solo hiking. But there's other things you can do outdoors. You know, it's not like you have to stay home all the time. Yeah. And that was the thing because when I, in the immediate aftermath, that is the, something that I was really bothered by and really sad about. Is like I'd moved back to the Natal Midlands and one of the great joys for me in doing that was like, yes, I can get back into the mountains and back into nature and back into these things that I've always loved and, and grew up doing, being out on hikes and stuff. And then this happened and I thought, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Just stay home and watch Netflix? What am I going to do? And then, um, so then discovering rock climbing and then climbing and completing a route in that park where I was attacked was a bit too poetic, a victory lap to just walk away from. I, I felt like I had completely kicked this thing's ass. You know, like when I climbed that day for the first time, I felt amazing. It was the best I'd felt since, not, not even just since the attack, but in years, <laughs> I felt amazing. I have no doubt you enjoyed this conversation with Karen. She's a strong woman and a fighter, and I love that about her. And if you like this one, I'm pretty sure you'll also enjoy the conversation I had with Kira back in episode 69. That episode is called Kira Was Attacked by a Serial Rapist. Here's a short clip from Kira's story. 
I realized he 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 was standing in a weird position. He was so close to me, uh, and I didn't feel like I could really do anything. And I was in my assessment of that. I realized he had he was holding his hand, he was holding his hand up weird, and I had my hands up because I had my phone and and the the uh, stun gun in either hand. So my hands were full, and they were up. And I realized his hand was up, and he had uh, he had a knife. And he was holding it just right in front of my my chest, sort of, and at my sternum and in front of my heart. And that was it. That was that was the that was all that was between us. Was just the length of of the knife that he was holding. And I just realized that I had to. I'm. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it, but my heart sank. Like my heart just sank. You can hear Kira tell that whole story at whatwasthatlike.com slash 69. The last episode from two weeks ago was called Danny Found a Baby on the Subway. If you haven't heard it yet, you absolutely need to go back and listen to that one. I've had so many positive comments about it. It's a wonderful story of love and family, and it involves adoption. And after that episode went live, I got this message from a listener, Jenny. Hi, Scott. My name is Jenny, and I have been an avid listener of yours for a while now. I love your podcast. It has brought me so much joy in some really dark times in my life. And I look forward to listening to a new episode every other week. I wanted to reach out about the most recent episode you played about Kevin's adoption story. One part stood out for me over the rest. At the end of the episode, you were describing Pete saying he felt that he didn't have any skills of being parents, so who are they to move forward with the adoption? Your reassurance that any two people can be parents who have love to give really hit home. My husband and I lost three babies mid-pregnancy three years in a row, so one per year, and I have felt so helpless since the last baby was lost, not feeling that I was good enough of a person to be a parent. I still feel as though those miscarriages happened to us for a reason, but it has been very difficult to figure out why. I have been apprehensive about beginning the adoption process, but your words have touched me and made me realize that love is the most important thing a baby needs. I think our baby is out there somewhere and will be ready for us when we are ready to meet them. We will be able to figure out the rest together as a family. Thank you for giving me this positive message of hope. Now, is that awesome or what? Jenny, I think you are on the right track. And just like that baby was lying there on the floor in the New York City subway, just hanging out until Danny noticed him, I believe your baby is out there somewhere waiting to be found by you. And when that happens, please, please call me back and let me know, because I'm sure everyone that just heard what you said will want to know when it happens. Okay, a couple more things before we have our listener story. We have a brand new raw audio episode. This one is episode number 20. In this one, you'll hear the full 911 audio of the call that was made from the filming location of the movie Rust, starring Alec Baldwin. Hi, I'm calling back from Bonanza Creek Ranch. We actually need two ambulances, not one. You need two? Okay, give me one second. And there's a call where two people come back to an Airbnb where they're staying, and a man literally follows them into the house. He's in the house. What is he wearing? What color is his clothes? It's a black, black t-shirt. And there's also a call involving a man who actually contacted me to tell this story on the podcast, 
and it involves a parent's worst nightmare. It's the baby! It's the baby! She's always at the I've got to have some help here. You can get that full episode and all 19 of the other raw audio episodes by supporting the podcast for just $5 a month. And you also get a personalized note and a What Was That Like sticker from me by mail and a personalized audio message from me. And you get all the new episodes of the show without any ads. Right now, there are about 170 people who support the show each month and new ones are coming in all the time. I'd love to get that up to a thousand supporters, and that's definitely going to happen. If you'd like to be one of those amazing people who support the show, you can sign up at whatwasthatlike.com support, and I greatly appreciate it. And the story you just heard with Karin is the last episode of 2021. We're about to go into a new year, and I have some plans and goals for the podcast in 2022. One goal is to move the podcast listener community from Facebook to a different platform. That's mostly set up already. I just have a few more things to get in place, but that's going to be happening pretty soon. If you want to be one of the sort of beta testers for that new group, drop me an email and I'll get you in early. And the other sort of big project I have planned is that I want to have transcriptions for each episode. I know there are some listeners who have limited ability to hear and it would just make it so much easier for them just to be able to read the text of each episode. So I'm looking into various options for getting that done. Of course, with 97 episodes, that makes this a pretty big project and a fairly expensive one. I can't do this myself because of the time involved, so I'll be hiring someone or several people to do this. So for the listeners who support the show, that's where some of your money is going to be going. And, of course, for 2022, I have some amazing stories to bring you. Some of them I've already recorded, and I can tell you right now, you are going to love them because I want this show to be your favorite podcast. I want you, at the end of every episode, to be thinking, wow, that's a story I'll never forget. I even want you to cry sometimes. I know that sounds a little weird that I would want you as a listener to cry when you're hearing a guest talk about what happened to them, But I know when someone on this show is telling a story like that, a story that brings out some deep-felt emotion, it's a good thing. And it's not always because of tragedy. We have some happy crying here, too. So I'm looking forward to starting a new year. 2021 was a great year of growth for the podcast, and I have no doubt it's going to be found by lots more people this coming year. And you can help that happen by telling your friends about it. I know you already do, because that's how a lot of people discover the show. All right, let's get on to today's listener story from Garrett. Stay safe, and I'll see you with the next episode in 2022. Oddly enough, in my headphones, I was listening to some courtroom analysis of a high-profile shooting case when the commotion started. Three consecutive bangs, and then a fourth. Immediately, I knew they were gunshots, and they sounded very close. So I went to the window, and I peered out, to the street in front of my home. At first glance, he looked like a pile of laundry that spilled onto the road because I didn't expect to see a body. A man had been gunned down and was sprawled out on the asphalt, and his legs were still on the sidewalk. He wasn't moving. I ran down the stairs to get a better look at what was happening, and I wasn't the only one. 
my landlord had just came down as well, and we spoke on the porch. People poured out into the fast food restaurant parking lot across the street, and some were frantic, and others were calm, and from my porch, I briefly remarked about the dire situation with my landlord as we watched a passerby administrating CPR. Suddenly, I realized perhaps I could help. So I ran upstairs to get a towel and I ran back down and I darted across the street. Uh, I darted across the street between the cars stalled in the traffic. I stood over the dying man and handed somebody a towel. When I looked down, I didn't see any obvious wounds, but he did have blood on his face. While one person on the ground was pumping his chest, others were gathering around. Background voices were making emergency calls and asking each other questions like, What happened? Did you see anything? I was just inside and I heard shots. Most clearly among the voices, a very distraught woman, evidently from inside the restaurant, pleaded and cried to no one in particular. Over an order? Over food? I returned home and watched for another 20 minutes before an ambulance finally had him loaded up and drove away. My own vehicle was still stuck inside the yellow tape that marked off the crime scene. It became clear from the witnesses inside the store that an argument had broken out between a customer and an employee, and when they took it outside, the worker pulled a gun. Unfortunately, the man was pronounced dead at the hospital. I don't know what happened to the shooter. Over food. Over an order. Uh...